Great. It was a long Bible reading, wasn't it? But, uh, yeah. The first time I ever heard the gift of tongues used in an, uh, was in an evening service in the church that I grew up in uh, Titarangi, Titarangi Presbyterian Church, way back in the 1970s. And it happened in a very Presbyterian way. In a quiet time after the worship songs, set aside for the use of the gifts, an elder in our church said he believed God had a message for us in tongues. He then spoke that message out. And a woman elder on the other side of the church then gave a message in English. And the minister who was running the service asked if the first elder felt that that was an interpretation, which the elder said, yes, he did. Uh, Then the wife of another of our elders spoke up and she said she'd been a teacher in Tonga for over three years. And while the language was not Tongan, it did seem to be a Pacific language. And a lot of the language that was, the words that were used were similar and she understood what they meant. And uh, they seemed to appear in the right position in that uh, message that was given in English for her to agree that it was an interpretation. It was a message of encouragement to the church. It was intelligible, in order, weighed by the congregation, and it built up the church. It fits into Paul's teaching in the passage that we had read out to us today in 1 Corinthians 14. A passage about the use of the gifts of the Holy Spirit in public worship. A difficult passage and one which has been used and in some cases misused to justify different practices in different churches. Between Easter and Pentecost, we are looking at the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And we're doing that by working our way through the passages in the epistles which have lists of those gifts. Romans 12, Ephesians 4, 1 Peter 4, and 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14. And hopefully as as we do that, we will be encouraged as a church to use the gifts that God has given us and be more open to the Spirit's presence and uh, moving in our midst. You see, we are God's spirited people. He has poured out his Holy Spirit on all of us. He has equipped us and empowered us to embody Christ in the world. The passage that we had read today focuses on two gifts, tongues and prophecy, and the very practical ways in which they should be used or not used and why. And it is the conclusion of Paul's teaching on gifts uh, to the church in Corinth, a church where there seemed to be an overemphasis on the gift of tongues, that it was seen as a sign of having arrived spiritually. As I said last week, See, I'm more spiritual than you are. Na, 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 na. And it was seen to be used in public worship in a chaotic way, with no consideration for other people. And before he deals with this practical day-to-day stuff, in the preceding chapters, Paul had gone back to look at some first principles, some theological ground rules that there were many gifts and they were given by the same Spirit. That's what Enosa uh, spoke on a couple of weeks ago. And then that there were many gifts but one body. We belong together and the gifts were given to use in unity and equality for the common good, which is what we looked at last week. 
And then he focused on the most important thing, the way of love, which we really haven't fitted into this series. And in my daily devotions this week, 1 Corinthians 13 actually came up. And I loved what Adrian Plass had to say. He said, we need to focus on love and realize that the gifts were like helpful pots and pans in the Christian kitchen, utensils that enable us to love one another. And Paul's teaching here starts by reinforcing for his listeners that they should follow the way of love, that that is of paramount importance. The sign of Christian maturity was not spiritual gifts, not speaking in tongues, but love for one another. And he reiterates the fact that people should seek the gift of prophecy, speaking God's word in a timely manner. And then he reinforces that by comparing tongues and prophecy and their uses, particularly in public worship. Tongues, unless it was interpreted, seems to be for personal, private use, for communication between the individual and God. Prophecy is a gift to be used in public worship. In verse 1 to 5, he articulates the fact that speaking in tongues simply edifies the one who is speaking, while prophecy edifies the body. And we're just going to work through systematically Paul's argument here. Um, He says that those who speak in tongues just speak to God. Those who speak God's word strengthen, encourage, and bring comfort. Paul actually wishes everyone spoke in tongues because of its personal benefit but he'd rather everyone focused on prophecy and spoke God's word because it builds each other up in love. Tongues becomes prophecy and can edify the body when it is interpreted. And then in verse 6 to 12, Paul backs this up by saying that it's important that the words being brought in public worship are intelligible, that they can be understood, as the clear use of gifts is to bring revelation or knowledge, or prophecy, or instruction. What good is it if no one knows what is being said? Last week, as part of our service, we commemorated Anzac Day, and Phil Cullen played uh, Last Post and Reveille for us. It stirred our hearts because we know the meanings of those calls. Paul uses that sort of illustration here to bring this idea of intelligibility home to the church. What good is a bugler that does not know the signals and the calls? It's just noise. And you can imagine an army in disarray trying to work out uh, what the heck the bugle call means if the bugler doesn't know the tune. What are we supposed to do now? Yeah. you could. Uh, what good is a harp player, says Paul, if they don't know the tune? Uh, I've got a friend who um, was in the uh, a psych a- emergency team in West Auckland and he said he'd met Jimi Hendrix three times <laughs> and, and Elvis a couple of times. And the really disappointing thing about Jimi Hendrix was that Jimi Hendrix, as he met, couldn't play the guitar. They didn't have any musical ability. <laughs> yeah. And maybe here is an echo of his words in 1 Corinthians 13 about gifts being used without love, where he says they're just a clanging gong. Even prophecy needs to be intelligible. In pagan worships and pagan temples, 
oracles would bring words from the deity that they served. But usually they were very vague and mysterious and obscure. They didn't make sense. They, you know, uh, and, and um, you know, Paul would say that that's a sign that they don't come from the living God. The living God makes sense. And the church in Corinth needed to know the difference between their pagan past and their Christian present. In verse 13 and 18, Paul continues to talk about the tongues. Tongues as being a person's spirit praying or singing. In Romans 8, 26 and 27, Paul had said, In our weakness, the spirit intercedes for us in groans too deep for words. Tongues as a prayer language fits that and it enables us to cry out and to speak to God from the depths of our being. Likewise, Paul speaks of singing in tongues, that he is praising God from his very spirit, from the very core of his being. However, um, and often uh, this, this passage is used to justify times of singing in, in tongues in a service. However, again, Paul says, goes on to say that in, in public, he wants to pray and give thanks with his mind as well as his spirit. When he gives thanks to God, he wants people to be able to say, Amen, to agree and see the wonder and greatness and goodness of God. Everyone else kind of finds themselves, uh, when, when they're speaking in a tongue that's not understood, finds themselves of feeling like an idiot that they don't understand. And in actual fact, the Greek word that's used here, uh, which is translated in the NIV as uninitiated, is in actual fact the Greek word idiot. You know, they actually feel like that because they don't know what is being said. And Paul finishes this section by saying he speaks in tongues more than any of them. He is affirming it as a gift. And this would have actually shocked the church at Corinth because one of the issues that the church at Corinth had was that they thought Paul was not a spiritual person. And here's Paul saying, well, actually, I've got the gift that you tend to think is to do with spiritual maturity. Uh, love uh, Justin Welby, the uh, Archbishop of Canterbury. And in an interview with him, he, uh, he talked about the fact that every day he speaks in tongues. And he says, it, you know, and it's not just something that I do out of sort of ecstasy uh, you know, because I do it at five o'clock in the morning and nobody's ecstatic at five o'clock in the morning, which I thought was quite interesting. But it's, it's, you know, it's a gift for people today. But in public worship, he would rather speak five words that were understood than 10,000 that were not. There's a stage in the development of infants and children which we actually think is rather cute, Right? That's when they start to learn to speak. And they think they can speak, but all they do is make noises and sounds, right? And Paul starts the next section by saying the Corinthians are like that. That they think they've got it when all they're doing is goo-gooing. They're just speaking like infants. And he follows that up by quoting the book of Isaiah, where it says that even if the people were to be spoken to in a foreign language, that they would not turn and repent. And then in verse 22 25, he speaks about the impact of the gifts of the Spirit on non-believers. He says that tongues is a sign for unbelievers. Now that has been interpreted in many ways as being a positive thing. And in Acts 2, it's a sign that the gospel and the promise of the Holy Spirit is for all people. 
But again, notice that it's a sign because all the people who were there in Jerusalem from all over the world heard everyone speaking intelligibly in their own language. Here, Paul says, for the unbeliever or the inquirer about the Christian faith, they come in and everybody's speaking in tongues, and it's a sign that you're all mad. That's what he says. However, if they come in and the word of God is being proclaimed and spoken, then they'll be convicted of their sin and come to repentance. They will turn to worship God. They will know the reality of God. I remember Jim Wallace, my senior pastor at St. John's in Rotorua, told the story of a man who came to the Lord. Jim had met him at a party, and the man, when he learned that Jim was a minister, said, oh, don't talk to me about God. I have absolutely no need for God. I've got everything together in my life. You know, it's all wonderful. You know, I'm quite capable of looking after myself. And Jim felt the Holy Spirit say to him, ask him why he sleeps with a gun under his pillow. And Jim took the risk and asked him. And the man's face turned white. And he said, how did you know that? And Jim said, well, God just told me. Believe it or not, that man came to the Lord very soon after that. You know, the secrets of our heart revealed. This is what Paul is talking about. That was at a party, not public worship, but yeah. Then in uh, verse 26, Paul turns to start telling people about how to act in worship, that it needed to be an organised matter. Paul prepared things and bought, people prepared things and brought it to worship. If tongues were to be used, well, actually, there needed to be someone who could interpret there. And then only one or two, and at the most three, should speak, and after each other, not all at the same time. Even with prophecy, there should be only one, or at most, three people speak. And then they should only speak once and not interrupt each other. In pagan worship, people would speak weird words, etc., and they'd be caught up in this manic behaviour. It'd be like they were at some sort of rave and dance, and they were all sort of uh, out of control, and they'd say weird and wonderful things as they came to a certain fever pitch. But Paul says the church is not to be like that. The Holy Spirit does not possess or override people. The Holy Spirit is gentle. So people need to do things in order. Public worship should reflect the character of God, which is peace, not disorder. And then he finishes off by giving some instruction about women in worship. And in June, we will start a series on women in the Bible called Her Story, Her Voice. And my contribution to that series will be looking at women in leadership in the New Testament. And we are going to work our way through some of these challenging passages, like the ones in verse 34 to 35, which have often been called the silencing verses. Because I believe that they've been wrongly used in the past to stop women from taking their place in leadership in the church. They've been misinterpreted and misused. In 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 11, Paul says women should prophesy and pray in church. They need to have their heads covered. So he can't here be meaning that they should not be involved in leading worship or speaking. You know, it's got to mean something else. 
Then he goes on to let people know that the instructions he's giving are the same for all the other churches and reiterates this, uh, this main point and says, you know, if, this, if the people are just not prepared to accept this, then don't accept them. He uh, again reiterates his main points to seek the more useful gift of prophecy so that the church can be built up. Don't forbid speaking in tongues, but remember to do all these things in order. Well, what does that mean for us today? Well, firstly, this whole series is to encourage us to use the gifts God has given us, and this passage gives us some very good insights and guidelines about their use in public worship. In fact, this really is some of the only teaching on public worship that we have in the whole of the New Testament. And sadly, it's to deal with what was going wrong at Corinth. Uh, we don't know what a first century worship service actually looked like. We don't. And as I said before, uh, it has been used down through the ages in many different ways. Traditionally, brethren and Quakers uh, have used this passage uh, to justify their way of, of worship, which is that they are silent until someone was moved by the Spirit to sing or to speak. Uh, as time went on, it became organised behind the scenes. It would be worked out by the elders before a worship service, right? Uh, um, Pentecostals and Charismatics have seen it as encouraging uh, a sort of freedom in worship, things like speaking and singing in tongues, but also that that should be done in order, that it opens the door to people, for people to bring words uh, to prophecy that is a more spontaneous occurrence, and they've identified prophecy with that spontaneous speaking. Traditionally, Reformed people and other mainline denominations, and by the way, Presbyterians are Reformed, uh, have seen that prophecy and people bringing their gifts to worship means that they prepare them beforehand and bring them to build up the whole church. Those bringing prophecy are seen as people set aside for the study and preaching of the word. Preaching is hopefully prophetic, not pathetic, making the timeless word of God timely. And, and uh, God is more likely to speak to us in the hours put into studying the word and weighing words for a sermon. It strengthens, encourages, reveals, instructs, points towards what God is doing. They are all ways that this passage has been applied and interpreted. Secondly, there is a tension between those who want the more spontaneous and those who want the more thought out. One of the things that the rediscovery of the gifts of the Holy Spirit and the charismatic and Pentecostal movement has meant that, that more people are actively involved in public worship, uh, which is great, and we try to encourage that here with people using their gifts. I think, however, there has been a pendulum swing between the spontaneous understanding and the spontaneous understanding that the spirit moves on the spur of the moment and the fact that the spirit moves in more planned and organized understanding of this passage. Well, I think we actually need to embrace both. To let God speak through the well thought out and also the sense of God speaking to us now. Both. 
Likewise, we have a tension between people who want to focus on the more spirit idea of worship, emotion and, and the heart feeling the presence of God, and those who want a more cerebral thinking worship. Uh, there has been a pendulum swing between these two things. The age of enlightenment was where to worship was a matter of thinking. And in response to that was the romantic movement. The romantic movement where anthems stirred the very soul. And you know, this is where our hymns actually come from. In response to the austerity of the enlightenment, people again wanted things that would uplift their soul in song. Charismatic movement with an emphasis on songs that connect with the hearts, on personal expressions of praise and worship, uh, more than corporate, uh, have, have sort of picked up the idea of this wanting to connect more with, by the spirit than, than our mind. And some of them become quite chant-like. And everybody will go, oh, they're terrible. There are all these repetitions. But in actual fact, it's designed so that people don't have to concentrate on the words, but they can use that as a vehicle for just focusing on God. You know, it's kind of the difference between listening to an amazing symphony, which is wonderful and transports you somewhere else, and, and pop song lyrics that still transport you somewhere else, but, are, uh, you know, they're, they're shorter, and they focus very much on the eye. Um, if you've ever been in a, in a concert in a... In a uh, a stadium anthem is played, you know, then, then people will just get into it and get caught up in the worship. Um, that's a secular way of looking at, at the tension that there is uh, in worship. Because at the same time, you see, as there has been that wanting that spontaneous and spirit-connected thing, uh, the other big movement in the church has been the new, new liturgical movement, where we rediscover the power of words and well-thought-out prayers and reflections and what I call neo-hymns. And personally, you know, I like both. And I find myself encouraged and strengthened being able to connect with God through both, wanting to embrace the best of all parts of the spectrum if it will build up the church in love. In the end, Paul's words are as real and important and relevant for us today. The key is the way of love, that we love one another. Christian maturity is that we're able to love one another, love one another across the same kind of issues the Corinthians had. Because, you know, we too can fall into the trap of uh, seeing this way of worship or that way of understanding the way the gifts are to be used in public worship as the more spiritual way. That God only moves and only speaks in the way we prefer. Like the Corinthians, we need to realise the key thing is that we love one another. We need to seek to allow God's word to be at the centre of all we do. So it may be told forth and strengthen and instruct and convict and reveal and even forth tell, point us to the future. We all need to seek the gifts that will be of most use to build up the church. We all need to not denigrate or write off any of these gifts. Public worship, we need to realise that they are used in a way that promotes peace and in an orderly way. So we can lovingly work together to build up the church to the glory of God. Amen?
Let's pray. Loving God, thank you very much for the fact that you uh, have put your Holy Spirit on each one of us, that you've given us gifts to use uh, to uh, build ourselves up, but mainly to build up the church together. And we pray, Lord, that as your people, we might follow the way of love. We might use those gifts in a way that would build up the church. It'd help us to be open just to your speaking through the well planned out and the organized and the spontaneous and the, yeah, all those things. Thank you that you are indeed the true God who does speak and move by your spirit. Amen. Great. Thanks, Steve.